Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the preeminent British historian, Eric Hobsbawm. Thank you very much for coming here, and I hope my voice will hold out. One of the drawbacks of uh, modern technology is that you get uh, colds when you travel by air, particularly across the Atlantic, but I hope it'll last. Now, everybody's into the past these days. Whether we call it history or heritage, biography or con conservation, roots, nostalgia, or tradition. This is, of course, very attractive for those of us who write history books, as I do. Let's just take this year's Hay Festival, even leaving out the local historical excursions in the steppes of Kilbert and in the steppes of more, more ancient archaeological inhabitants of Radnorshire. In his first three full days, it includes, by my count, at least a dozen sessions about writing which deals in one way or another with the past or which has the word history in its job description. This isn't surprising. The past is an essential dimension of the present and never more so than at times when the world and our lives change so rapidly that we simply don't know where we and the world are going. In fact, the more novel a social phenomenon is, the more it tries to anchor itself, to define its identity in terms of a past of its own, mostly inventive. Nationalism is the best known example of this, but not the only one. I've tried to analyze this and other social functions of the past in a chapter of my new book, which is, among other things, about the uses and abuses of history. Now, if we leave aside autobiography, which is a sort of do-it-yourself history, all the material to meet this flood of interest in the past comes, or at least derives, from research by historians. Today, more than ever, this raises very serious problems for uh, people in my trade. The simplest way of expressing these is by the title of a book written by some colleagues, indeed friends of mine in America, called Telling the Truth About History. Does truth matter in history? To whom does it matter? That is what I'm going to be talking about. Let me start with a recent experience a couple of years ago in a city with lots of history and three names, Pressburg, Bratislava, and Porzhon. Used to be the capital of Hungary when the Turks occupied Budapest and for some time after. It lies on the Danube less than a mile from the border with Austria and within commuting distance of Vienna. When the old Habsburg monarchy collapsed, it became part of the new Czechoslovak Republic, 
and the chief city in its Slovak component. After 1939, it became the capital of a Slovak state, which was a satellite to Nazi Germany, and incidentally, it lost some of its suburbs to greater Germany, just the other side of the Danube, though it's once again on the edge of Austria. Today, it's the capital of the Slovak Republic. Until 1939, it used to be, like so many biggish cities in Central Europe, a cosmopolitan place, which conducted its business mostly in German, with a touch of Yiddish, since it also had a large Jewish population. There are still a number of Jewish families in the world called Pressburger, including, by the way, the family of Karl Marx's mother. I don't have to tell you that since 1939, the Jews have been killed or gone to the US and Israel. The Germans have been expelled. Official business used to be conducted under the Habsburgs in Hungarian until it stopped being in Hungary and the Magyar officials were replaced by Czech ones. The unofficial Hungarians, mostly from the surrounding farming population, are still there, but they are no longer regarded as fully human by the Slovak nationalists who are now in command. The Slovaks, whose pro profile was extremely low under the Habsburgs and subordinated to the Czechs after 1918, have taken over the city. It is now inhabited by immigrants from the remoter regions of agrarian Slovakia. I don't have to tell you that a place like that has a complicated history. It's illustrated by the fortunes of the statues on the so-called Royal Mound, which is a small square by the Danube where the kings of Hungary used to show themselves after their coronation, which took place in this city. I'll tell you about it not for its own sake, but because it illustrates the difference between professional historians and those who use the stuff we produce. At the end of the 19th century, the Hungarian government decided to celebrate a great hypothetical anniversary, the thousand years since the wild and nomadic Magyar horsemen had first established themselves on the Hungarian plain. Uh, readers of a book which I edited with Terry Ranger called The Invention of Tradition will remember that this was a great moment for inventing traditions in lots of countries. On the other hand, for reasons which needn't concern us, it was also felt suitable at this moment to make a gesture to Vienna by putting up a statue to the Empress Maria Theresa, who in another capacity was also Queen of Hungary on the royal mound. Between 1740, this young queen empress, her baby, the future Joseph II, patron of Mozart in her arms, had come to the Hungarian assembly in Pressburg, Pozsony, to plead for the support of the Hungarian magnates against the king of Prussia, who had just seized the Habsburg territories of Silesia. The schoolbooks say that the Hungarian magnates were deeply moved and rose as one man to help her. This didn't actually get Silesia back, but guaranteed Hungarian autonomy from Vienna because the queen now owed them one. No doubt there was a political moral here which the Hungarian government wanted to recall as they celebrated their uh, millennium. The statue stayed there 
until after the monarchy ended in 1918. A couple of years later, a mob of ultra-nationalist Czech legionaries, the ones who had risen against the Bolsheviks and thus started this Russian Civil War, were outraged by this symbolic survival of the old regime. They tore the statue down, but since Czechs are hard-headed and practical people, uh, they didn't waste the good marble. Most of it was recycled to make a statue of Palatsky, an eminent historian uh, and great figure in the 19th century Czech national movement. Some was turned into souvenirs. Palatsky is still said to be around somewhere, though I never managed to find that statue. Instead, a great column was put up with the Czech lion and the Czech coat of arms at the top, proudly looking across the Danube. Slovak feelings were conciliated by putting a statue of a certain Stefanik at the bottom of the column, a Slovak figure in the Czechoslovak fight for freedom not otherwise much heard of. Then comes Munich and the German occupation of the Czech lands in 1939, which implied autonomy and eventually a nominal independence for Slovakia. The column came down officially because Hitler, who had annexed the suburbs across the Danube, couldn't bear to be overlooked by a Czech animal, more likely because the Slovak nationalists didn't like these symbols of the, their neighboring after all, nationalism is invariably directed against the neighbor and not against anybody else. Uh, Catalan nationalism is exclusively anti-Spanish, Welsh nationalism is exclusively anti-English, and so on. Stefanik uh, <laughs> um, stayed, but without the column, the lion or the Czech coat of arms, until sometime in the middle 50s, when the communist regime removed him presumably worried by Slovak nationalism. There was nothing on the mound until after the Russians invaded in 1968. After that, the communist regime felt the need to conciliate the Slovaks, who had, after all, provided the leader of the Prague Spring. So Czechoslovakia was divided into a Czech and a Slovak Socialist Republic in 1971. The time for another statue had come. But who? The government picked on one Ludovic Stuhr, the 19th century inventor of what proved to be the successful version of the Slovak literary language. This one didn't have to be changed in 1989. Stuhr is still there, looking over the Danube in front of a semi-abstract stone construction. Michelangelo it is. Now here's my point. Everyone concerned with putting up and dismantling these statues over the past century was using history, ranging from the most ancient to the contemporary. All of them treated history essentially as the raw material for their own political or ideological manipulation. The constructors of the interwar column weren't really worried by the fact that the Stefanik, to whom this rather large monument was dedicated, was quite insignificant in the history of the country, less significant, say, than the grand old Duke of York, again, uh, uh, whose name graces so many uh, English pubs. He became significant because they chose him as a symbol. The fact that both the subject and the material of these monuments 
could be destroyed, replaced, and recycled is typical. At the same time, all of them regarded history as the indispensable material for their manipulations. This is highly characteristic of nations and nationalism, which exists by pretending that a historically novel phenomenon has been there unchanged since the beginnings of time, but it is also true of other forms of politics, especially identity politics. Of all these, it is true, as the great French scholar Ernest Renan said in the 1880s that, I quote, forgetting history, even getting it wrong, is an essential factor in the formation of a nation. In fact, all human beings, collectivities and institutions need a past and provide themselves with a suitable one. Unfortunately, the one the historical profession produces is not often the one they want. So we historians coexist uneasily with everyone else. They need us, but they need not our facts, but our fictions. But in spite of relativists and postmodernists, distinguishing between facts and fiction is as essential to historians as to judges and juries in murder trials. The distinction may appear pedantic and trivial to non-historians, uh, but nevertheless, it is there. My uncle, who once had to do the publicity for an American film company for the Polish release of the movie Frankenstein, I'm talking about the early 1930s, um, thought it was a good idea given the nature of the urban uh, movie market in that country, which was largely Jewish, to get a sort of word-of-mouth campaign going that Boris Karloff was really called Borluch Karloff and therefore a good Jew. Now, I'm his nephew, I'm a prof professional historian, and I therefore know I'm obliged to treat this as a statement about my uncle or about the movie industry in early 20th century Central Europe, but not about Boris Karloff, an actor of impeccable British middle-class antecedents named Pratt. <laughs> now, obviously, to many users of historical material, it doesn't matter a damn whether they have the facts right. You remember the anecdote of the Hollywood mogul who had the brilliant idea of ending his projected biopic of Mozart with the composer sitting around the piano and presenting his beloved with his latest hit namely the Blue Danube Waltz. <laughs> you can't do that, said the scriptwriter. Who's to stop you, said the producer, and of course technically he was right. Historical accuracy has nothing to do with either showbiz or politics. This is not because those who make them don't care about it. In fact, they often take great pride in getting the period details right, but because it isn't relevant to their purpose or to their public's purpose. Do we care as theatre goers whether in fact Macbeth really had met witches on his road or whether Lady Macbeth had said infirm of purpose give me the dagger to kill King Duncan? We don't. Historians of 11th century Scotland may mind because Macbeth was a bona fide king of Scotland between I think 11, uh, uh, 
1040 and 1057. But as far as we're concerned, it is as irrelevant to us as the fact that King Lear wasn't a real king anywhere. Uh, but we don't regard, we regard these as dramas and not as historical reconstructions. So why should we worry about factual details? The same with the public theater politics. If one thing is firmly established uh, about the druidic or fancy dress of the Welsh nationalist headman, it is that it is quite certainly not like the ceremony of the ancient Celtic Druids. Uh, in fact, we know that the theatricals of their Stedford, which are very moving and which uh, continue to move and, and express a great deal about the culture of this uh, country and its people, were constructed by an enthusiastic Welsh patriot in the 18th century which was a great age for inventing suitably impressive materials of a glorious national past where history had unfortunately omitted to preserve them. <laughs> Think of uh, the composition of a famous Highland Celtic epic of Ossian, you see, uh, which uh, in fact uh, convinced everybody, including uh, the greatest minds of the time. Um, <coughs> This can't be done so easily today. Even the Pope has been obliged to submit the Turin Shroud to carbon dedating, although it has recently been shown that the great national ritual of Israel, the pilgrimage to the top of the ancient site of Masada, is based on some fairly dodgy archaeology by a patriotic Israeli scholar-soldier. The official story of Masada has never had much support among experts in the history of Roman Palestine. Of course, today, when you can't invent and lie to the same extent as you could in the 18th century, uh, the present manner of using, or so to speak, uh, skewing history is largely by anachronism, but uh, I, I, I leave that aside. Now, the fact is, it's all very well for producers and politicians tell me it doesn't really matter. Does it matter, for instance, uh, that um, uh, the state of Ghana is nowhere near the ancient or medieval African empire after which it is named? Um, nevertheless, today as a historian, I'm told it doesn't matter, not only by nationalists, by advertisers, by showbiz producers, but by people who should know better. Um, I'm constantly told that history is a form of fiction, that there isn't such a thing as a real fact. The fashion for so-called postmodernism has fortunately not gained as much ground among historians and among literary and cultural theorists and anthropologists, even in the USA, but it is gaining ground. I discuss it among other things in my new book. It goes with jargon phrases like discourse is a maker of this world, not the mirror, language constitutes what it describes, and so on. But if there is no clear distinction between what can be shown to be true and what I feel to be true, between verifiable or falsifiable fact and uh, what is inspiring, convenient, or comforting, then anyone's construction of reality is as good as yours or mine or anybody else's. 
Naturally, such views appeal particularly to groups of people who see themselves as representing communities marginalized by what is called the hegemonic culture of somebody at the top whose superiority they contest. But it is wrong. Some things can be shown to be so or not to be so by established rules of evidence and reason. However strongly we may believe that Elvis Presley is still with us, he isn't. <laughs> uh, this is not only a matter for historians, though it is central for them. It is history that Hitler lost the war. But Robert Harris has written a very interesting book, which is speculative fiction, on the assumption that he won the war and what would have happened in Italy. But the difference for the historian is absolutely clear. The one is what happened, the other is what might have happened, what you can imagine, but what did not happen. Um, as I write in the preface to my new collection, if you are innocent and prosecuted for a crime in the courts, what you need is a defense based on old-fashioned positivist evidence. If you're guilty, you would be better off picking a postmodernist defendant. This is exactly what happened in uh, the two uh, O.J. Simpson trials. The first acquitted uh, him because he said it didn't really matter whether uh, other things were just as important as whether he had actually uh, killed his wife. And the second one concentrated on the old-fashioned way, uh, the Sherlock Holmes way of saying, did he do it and can we prove that he did? Unfortunately, the results of these two trials are simply not compatible. And this is one of the problems about the postmodern approach uh, to history. Now, this isn't uh, simply a, a matter of trivial or individual. For instance, when the Hindu zealots organized a mass campaign a few years ago, 1992, to tear down a Muslim mosque claimed to have been built on a Hindu site in a city which they claimed to have been the birthplace of the Hindu god, campaign which led to considerable religious massacre, they were well advised to say that, and I quote, such issues cannot be resolved by court verdict. Because they knew that if the factual issues, for instance, whether the mosque site had originally been a Hindu site, were put to the courts, their verdict would have gone against them. As a matter of fact, there are limits even to postmodernism in practice find it impossible to conceive of a postmodern theorist uh, in, say, New York, who uh, would um, actually fail to apply old-fashioned positivist evidence when it came to distinguishing a historical construction which denies the Holocaust from one which admits it. Now, this is my point. Under relativism, history ceases to be a form of intellectual communication because it abandons a single universe of discourse. It divides into non-communicating containers of identity history. If you, it's Croat history, it's for Croats and nobody else, or Hasidim and nobody else. It's exclusively for proletarians, homosexuals, or Muslims. Or Supposing I'm a left-hander by nature, if I were to identify myself as a member of a community of left-handers, 
I would then demand a history which is understandable only to those who have the specific experience uh, of being forced by the right-handed majority of oppressors to, uh, that's by definition of oppressors, uh, to um, uh, into, in, into uh, a, a world which is unsuited to ourselves. It's not fully understandable by anybody else, identity history, or not supposed to be. But universalism is the necessary condition for rational discourse in history as in anything else. And history is a universal discourse. Let me conclude with another historical experience which I hope actually establishes the point. This, I think, happened um, two or three years ago in a conference in Italy, based on the following facts. In the early summer of 1944, as the German army retreated northwards in Italy to establish the so-called Gothic Line in the Apennines, its units carried out a number of local massacres, usually justified as reprisals against local bandits, that is, partisan activities. Now, 50 years later, some of these village massacres in the province of Arezzo, hitherto left to the memory of the village's own survivals and local historians, provided the occasion for an international conference on the memory of German massacres in World War II. This conference has gathered together not only historians and social scientists from various countries in Eastern and Western Europe and the USA, but local survivors, old resistors, and other interested parties. So no subject could be more, could be less purely academic than this. Fifty years after 175 men were separated from the women and children in Civitella della Chiana, shot and dumped in the burning houses of their villages, of their village, we discussed this and similar phenomena. Not surprisingly, the conference took place in an extraordinary atmosphere of emotional tension and uneasiness. After all, only a few weeks earlier, Italy had elected the first government since 1943 that included fascists and was dedicated both to anti-communism and to the proposition that the resistance of 1943-5 had not been a movement of national liberation and in any case that it belonged to a remote past which was irrelevant and people shouldn't bother about remembering. Everybody was uneasy. The survivors of the times of resistance and massacre were uneasy at the emergence into the open of things which, as every countryman and countrywoman knows, were best left unspoken. How, except by a tacit agreement to bury the conflicts with the past, could rural life have returned to any kind of normality after 1945? This is a very real problem, actually, because I mean, some of the people who had to live together afterwards were people who during the, the, the war had killed each other. The old partisans and indeed public opinion in this very left-wing area of Italy were uneasy at living through a moment when the Italian Republic officially seemed to reject the tradition against, of the resistance against Hitler and Mussolini, which they, quite rightly, regarded as its intellectual foundation. 
and justification. The young, and presumably mainly left-wing historians who have interviewed or re-interviewed the old villagers preparing for the conference, were shocked to find, at least in one strongly Catholic village, the inhabitants blamed not so much the Germans for the massacres, but rather the local youngsters who had joined the partisans and they felt had irresponsibly plunged their families into disaster. Other historians had their own cause for unease. The German historians present were palpably haunted by what their fathers and grandfathers in 1944 had done or hadn't done. Virtually all non-Italian historians, and several Italian ones, had never heard of the massacres in whose memory the conference was organized, and this was a troubling reminder of the sheer arbitrariness of historical survival and memory. Why had some become part of the wider discourse and others not? The Russian participants made no secret of their belief that concentrating on Nazi atrocities was simply a means of diverting attention from the horrors of Stalinism. The specialists in the history of the Second World War, irrespective of their national background, couldn't avoid the question 50 years later whether the massacres of the innocents that spring, and they amounted, it's said, to about 1% of the total population of the province of Arezzo, whether these were a justifiable price to pay for the relatively minor military harassment of a German force which was in any case withdrawing and planning to withdraw within a matter of weeks or days. And the very subject matter of this conference, atrocity, was impossible to contemplate rightly wasn't confined to local microhistory. A lot of people dealt with the genocide. Some of the leading experts in this field were also there. Yet, uh, while we stood on the rebuilt piazza of this once destroyed village, listening to an elaborate commemorative narrative which the survivors and the children of the dead had constructed about that terrible day in 1944, how could we fail to see as professionals that our kind of history wasn't merely incompatible with theirs, but in some ways destructive of it. What was the nature of the communication between the historian who presented the mayor of the village with the transcript of the inquiry into the massacre made by the British Army a few days after it occurred and the mayor who received it? For us, it was a primary archival source establishing what actually happened. For him, it was a reinforcement of the village's memorial discourse, which we historians easily recognize as partly mythological. And yet, that memorial narrative was a way for the village to come to terms with a trauma which was as profound for this particular village as the Holocaust was for the Jewish people as a whole. Was our history designed for universal communication of what could be tested by evidence and logic relevant to their memorial, which by the very nature of its very nature belonged to nobody but themselves. In fact, as we later learned, the villagers had for decades kept it to themselves for these reasons, refusing out of a tact which we didn't share to inquire into the detail of a neighboring village's massacre because that wasn't their past, 
It was their neighbor's past. Was our history comparable to their history at all? Was there a history or were there simply, this is a problem exactly, no occasion could have better dramatized the confrontation between universality and identity in history and the historian's confrontation with the past and the present. That's why I'm quoting it to you. And nevertheless, this very confrontation demonstrated that for historians, universality necessarily prevailed over identity. As it happened, at least one historian present there represented both in his own person. The organizer of the conference itself had himself stood on the piazza of Civitella as a small child with his mother as the Germans dragged away and slaughtered his father. He was still part of the village where he spent the summers in the old family house. Nobody could possibly deny that for him, as for all his fellow villagers, the massacre held memories and meanings which it could not hold for the rest of us. Or even that he would read the archival records uh, in ways, uh, in the same way as historians who lacked this personal involvement. And yet, as a historian, he confronted this memorial narrative of the village, which we heard given to us by various people, the local priest, the local lady, uh, uh, an old lady, a presentation in the church and so on. He confronted this in exactly the same way as historians lacking his personal involvement, namely by applying the rules and criteria of the discipline. The village narrative had to be tested against the sources, and by its standards, it was not history, or at any rate, it was a different kind of history, but one which would not be a reliable part of what really happened. It was itself, of course, uh, the formation of the village memory, its institutionalization, its changes of the past 50 years, these were part of these were part of the historical record, but it's a different thing from saying what they said themselves about what happened in 1944 was of the same value as history as that what we discovered. In short, on the questions with which historical research and theoretical reflection deals, there was and could be no difference of substance between scholars for whom the identity problems of Civitella were insignificant or uninteresting and a historian for whom they were existentially central. All historians present hope to agree about the formation of the questions about Nazi atrocities, the formulation of the questions about Nazi atrocities, though we know perfectly well that you couldn't necessarily expect to get the same answers or agree, um, agreement about the answers. All agreed about the procedures for answering these questions, the nature of the possible evidence which would allow them to be answered insofar as the answer depended of evidence, and so on. On the other hand, those who were unwilling to submit their or their community's experience to these procedures, or who refused to accept the results of such tests, were outside the discipline of history. However much we as historians respected their feelings and motives. In fact, the interesting thing was that emotionally this was a conference which is enormously tense for the reasons that I've explained. Everybody has tense feelings. 
But in terms of what we were actually discussing, there was an extraordinary consensus among the various scholars who were there. But does it matter if we abandon history as a universal discourse? I think it does. Abandonment leads not only to the absurdity which flourishes on the wilder shores of, say, Afrocentric or American Indian history, or for that matter, in official Turkish historiography, but real danger. Since the early 1980s, for instance, an important trend among German historians has once again called for a return to the sort of history which is concerned above all with the German nation and its mission and manifest destiny. Now, when this happens in another country, another nation, we realize uh, that, particularly one in which it has led to rather bad results in the past, we realize that this is not harmless. And yet, the pressures for identity history are enormous. The internal and external pressures may be tremendous. Our passions and our interests, our experience of life, our love, our sympathies urge us in this direction. Every Jew, for instance, whatever his or her occupation, instinctively accepts the force of the question with which, during many threatening centuries, members of our minority community confronted every and any event in the wider world. Is it good for the Jews? Is it bad for the Jews? I'm not saying the answer to this was the best guide, but that's the way in which automatically people who felt themselves threatened reacted. Yet, it cannot and should not guide a Jewish historian, even one who writes a history of its own people. Historians, however microcosmic, however attached to their own community, their nation, or their group, must be for universal not out of loyalty to an ideal to which many of us remain attached, me for instance, but because it is a necessary condition for understanding the history of humanity, including that of our own section of it. You cannot be an English historian without thinking of the rest of the world. You've got to see your own group within this broad context. For all human collectivities necessarily are and have been part of a larger and more complex world. A history which is designed only for Jews or African Americans or Greeks or women or proletarians or homosexuals cannot be good history, though it may be comforting history to those who practice it. Unfortunately, as the situation in large parts of the world at the end of our millennium demonstrates, bad history is not harmless history. It is dangerous. The sentences typed on apparently innocuous keyboards may turn out to be sentences of death. Renan, whom I quoted early on, ended his famous judgment uh, on history and nationalism with the words, so the progress of historical studies is often a danger to nationality, and I would add to identity history. That is what historians should be. Thank you.
Well, we can take questions. I gather somewhere around are mics for those who, yes? Uh, we can take questions for, uh, I suppose, about 20 minutes or so. So who, who would like to start? There's somebody here. I suppose Marxism was a kind of vehicle for taking identity history into universal ways of thinking. I is there anything that can take its place in contrast to postmodernism? I don't think Marxism uh, was particularly involved in identity history. I mean, uh, it became identity history in the Soviet Union, which said there's only proletarian science, not real science. Marx didn't think that he was having a special uh, kind of Marxist uh, understanding as distinct from the understanding of whatever it is, uh, the British bourgeoisie. Uh, he believed that what he was contributing is to a general uh, analysis of, of society. Whether you think that this is uh, right or the wrong one is another thing, but not that Marx claimed that he was, what, what he was doing was uh, incompatible with to what other people were doing. He thought the others were wrong and could be shown to be wrong. Are there any circumstances in which historical facts should not be revealed? Uh, yes, uh, if you judge as a citizen or as a politician or as somebody directly involved in things, then clearly uh, there are limits uh, to what you can say or at least what you can publish. It so happened, for instance, that in the, at Bletchley during the war, uh, the famous decoding center, there were a very large number of historians or people who became historians afterwards, surprisingly large number. Uh, and yet, as we know, uh, not a word about what happened at Bletchley was published or indeed breathed privately by any of the people who'd been there, including to their nearest and dearest and intimate friends and uh, partners and spouses, until the middle 1970s. For 30 years, there were a number of people who on grounds, which are not historical grounds, but whatever it is, security, having taken the right oath, whatever it is, they regarded as morally uh, compelling. Uh, I think eventually it comes out and now it has become part of the record. And a bit fair amount of the wor World War II, the history of World War II has had to be rewritten uh, as a result. But the moral obligations which face historians like any other human being uh, are different. If the moral obligations are too great, then it may well be that uh, the person may decide it would be better to stop being a historian because he would then be obliged to lie too much. Plenty of other jobs. Mr. Hobsbawm, to go back to your Italian village and the experience that you had there, are you aware um, whether there were any changes in the attitude of the inhabitants after the experience of the conference towards the history of what happened in the village? 
Um, I haven't actually talked to my uh, friend and colleague, Leonardo Paggi, who organized this since that time. I don't actually expect they would have done, because in a way, for the survivors there, who had, as it were, constructed their own, what I call a memorial narrative, this really was so important that uh, they would be prepared, obviously, in principle, uh, but they would it would be easier for them to go on. This is the way they have come to terms with this, this particular experience, which uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that for this particular village, seeing all its males slaughtered was, uh, in some ways, even more directly traumatic as the Holocaust for whole Jews, because, I mean, the entire population was actually present at this Holocaust. So it would be too much to expect. Uh, I mean, there may be among local intellectuals, of whom there are not very many, uh, some changes, but I have no, can't check it. Who else? Ah, there's a lady there and a gentleman there. <coughs> Mr. Hobsbawm, your um, analysis of, um, or, or your pointing us towards um, historians who talk about identity um, reminded me of, in the human rights world, the debate between cultural relativism taken up by countries like China uh, and those who claim that human rights um, are universal and should be upheld universally. I wonder if you'd like to comment on that. Uh, yes, I think this is, uh, I am uh, profoundly opposed to this kind of relativism. Uh, it seems to me, uh, insofar as being an improvement in the human condition, uh, it has been due essentially to applying the basic principles of the 18th century rationalist enlightenment. It says universal rights, universal truth, universal improvements. Now I know, as a scholar, that there is enormous cultural relativism, that in fact, uh, let us say, uh, things which outrage us uh, are accepted in certain civilizations and even regarded as part, essential constitution. It seems to me even the British imperialists were right to ban the burning of widows in India. Uh, However, even though a very sound anthropological case has been made, today once again, I'm sorry to say, by uh, Indian relativists, saying that this disturbed uh, the, the, the traditional structure of in the Indian community. Now, I do believe that uh, the people who claim relativism have it is, it is, shall we say, the heirs of the 18th century enlightenment, the believers in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or whatever the slogans of these days were, who have been behind any major improvement in the situation of ordinary people in the world. They've often been superficial, they've done the wrong things, they've not understood very well, but if you want to have any movement, you must assume that this improvement applicable for everybody, at least in theory. Uh, so uh, I am bitterly opposed to people who uh, defend relativism because they say uh, the old uh, project of the 18th century rationalism is dead and should never be started. 
I'm appalled, for instance, at the chief rabbi at the moment, who goes around saying it was a bad idea, we should go back to a sort of thing where everybody just gets back to religious roots. If we were in that situation, the Jews would still be living in ghettos all over, uh, all over Europe. It was the people who believed in universal uh, enlightenment who, in fact, and universal improvement, who made it possible for minorities, oppressed minorities, to be given the same rights as everybody else. And I think that, that is a good thing. I'm slightly concerned about the polarity that you pose between universality and identity. Uh, and I think a lot of people here might um, disagree with your idea that Welsh um, identity is, uh, is purely or simply anti-English. But just, that's just one aspect of it. Surely um, it, it's going to be necessary in the 21st century for history to see a plurality of debate as opposed to um, an opposition of them in the, in the way that you mentioned. It's almost like you're suggesting there's an opposition between theory and practice. Well, uh, in practice, of course, it's uh, the, the dividing lines are never as clear as all that. Nevertheless, I think they ought to be made, because I don't think once you uh, admit pure relativism, uh, you are intellectually lost. Uh, some things can be shown to be so. And if they can be shown to be so, uh, other things, some other things are eliminated. As I say, this is, this is not purely a historical statement. The statement is, uh, it applies to science, it applies to most other things. And the people who are relativists are mostly people who deal in subjects in which either this isn't the case. You can go on arguing until the cows come home because there's never any way of deciding whether, as you might say, uh, Dickens is better than George Eliot, or in some way, not, not in the same sort of way that you can decide uh, that uh, Germany lost the war uh, and didn't win it. Uh, or else uh, there are people who simply uh, don't like the results of um, rational inquiry. About the small scale nationalism, I'm bound, I, sh I should, I think, here make a sort of defense of the honor of Welsh nationalism, which has brought forward the one Welsh nationalist historian who actually writes, has made a major contribution to the understanding of the history of nationality. Uh, and uh, this uh, is this is a good thing, for instance, who has recognized uh, that uh, Wales isn't something that has existed at all times, that it is a historical something in historical evolution, that the Welsh people have been in historical evolution. Unfortunately, most, uh, uh, Gwynalf uh, Williams uh, is, is, is the man I'm thinking of, who died short, uh, a couple of years ago, and who, in my view, was not merely a marvelous historian and probably the best, so to speak, historical preacher that I've known, uh, but who is really a, a, a very great and original mind. Uh, nonetheless, you've got to recognize it. It's 
small nations define themselves not against the world, against their big neighbors. There's been inquiries, for instance, about linguistic purism. It's demonstrated uh, linguistic purism among the Czechs was directed exclusively against German in, uh, borrowings, not against borrowings from anywhere else. Catalan nationalism is directed exclusively against the Spaniards. And you can show this. Uh, sometimes it doesn't do any harm. In the case of Spain, it does do any harm because it provides, actually, the, uh, it deprives the bulk of um, uh, the inhabitants, the poorer inhabitants of Catalonia, of access to one of the world's languages. Um, Eric, changes in the air. We've seen changes in this country three and a half weeks ago. Uh, the early results from France yesterday indicate that there's an echo of that there. Uh, can I invite you to speculate on the way that historians will interpret this change? And perhaps I could uh, be a bit more specific and say, are we more likely not to see the forward march of labor restarted, but the forward march of labor changing direction? Well, all we can say is that right now the backward march of labors is being halted. <laughs> uh, but uh, what happens next, I don't know. I would like uh, to warn against the tendency to uh, invent or discover historical tendencies at short notice. This has been something which is very common, for instance, in certain parts of the world, Latin America, for instance. At some time, people say, Latin America is going this way. It's all going and becoming military. In the 80s, they said, it's all becoming uh, democratic. Uh, there is something to this, because after all, people do look at other countries and get inspired by it. And there's no doubt at all this happened in France. The effect of the British elections must have had some kind of spin-off in, in France, too. But uh, let's, let's wait for a while before we discover that something fundamental has changed, or even that everybody is going, uh, is, 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 has now decided to give up the right wing. I note, for instance, that in France, the ultra-right wing has uh, had its best results yet so far. That's also part of the story. Fortunately, this is not the case in Great Britain. Or touch wood in Germany. Ah. <coughs> may, may I just ask you uh, to what extent you believe uh, a nation like the Germans, of which I am one of them, should live or, or sh must impose historic guilt? Uh, I mean, the, the fact is, everybody uh, in a nation must come to terms with their national history one way or another. It's very important. Um, what I think is dangerous is the assumption that your national history is in some way something different from other people's national, or qualitatively different from other people, that in a sense you've got a historical mission. That American history, for instance, historians are often very difficult to understand for non-American historians because they're constantly concerned with questions which don't normally bother us. 
namely what does it mean to be American? What is Americanism and so on, you see? Uh, and um, it would be easier uh, if you, in a sense, can see, I mean, the Americans always are pleased to see that they're not as other countries. Well, now, all other peoples, all peoples are tend, big or little, to think that they're not like others. If they're big enough, they think they're better. In some instances, they think that the world will be saved by or through them. The French believed this for a long time during the French Revolution and, and for a while after. They're actually in great trouble because they find that the world no longer regards French culture as, centra as central globally as it once was. The Poles once believed it. Thank God they've given it up. Um, you know, the Messiah of nations. Small peoples, they all believe it one way or another, and it's a dangerous thing. It's an understandable thing, but it's a dangerous thing, and historians couldn't, shouldn't really have any truck with it. As individuals, uh, we, I mean, we should try and discourage it. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, Professor Hobsbawm, in terms of the universal truth, how do you distinguish between the historical revisionism, which necessarily, one might say, is taking place in Russia, in Eastern Europe, and now, I think, in South Africa, uh, with the revisionism that take, has, take, has taken place amongst academics uh, in terms of the Holocaust? There's two kinds of revisionism. Uh, one is what you might say a career uh, tactic of young academics. <laughs> uh, because there's now a very large profession in any kind of uh, academic profession, the best way to make your reputation is to disagree with others. Uh, and so naturally there is a built-in tendency, particularly in history, to have periodic revisions of what is expected of, of, of the orthodoxy. This is intellectually trivial, although it can produce naturally very interesting things. On the other hand, there is the question, as in countries like the formerly socialist countries and others, of coming to terms with total change and in a sense coming to a historical judgment of, uh, what, uh, of a particular historical era. Uh, also, look at it on the positive side, in when nationalist or other liberation movements come to power, they come to power with a version of history of their own. Very much so in the case of Ireland, you know, where the, the sort of Connolly labor in Irish history and all sorts of things. And after they come to power, then the situation is no longer what it was. Now there, I think, uh, it's a question of generations. For the generation immediately following these great changes, I think these are a dead write-off for most of history. No interesting history is likely to come out of the former Soviet Union, uh, for has come out of it so far, or is likely to come out of it uh, for another 10 or 20 years. Uh, because for these people, the much most important thing is simply to come to terms with this experience, to denounce it, to defend it, to do whatever it is. 
But there comes a time, and this comes, for instance, in the case of Irish historiography, of Israeli historiogra historiography, about uh, oh, 30, 40 years after, where a new generation comes up and says, we can now look at these great changes in perspective, in some kind of historical perspective. We can see that some things which were utterly denied in the past have to be admitted. We can see it in a different context. As far as the Holocaust is concerned, for instance, uh, I doubt whether this moment has come, although probably with the passing of the generation, like my own age group, uh, whose members were actually uh, the victims of the Holocaust and, you know, which are directly re related to them, with the passing of that generation, there will also come a revision of, among uh, the Jewish historian, of uh, this uh, extraordinary trauma too. Uh, but it isn't an immediate thing. I think we, we must regard major historical experiences, political experiences, as things which for a time being uh, leave uh, the historian speechless unless he stands outside, unless he comes from outside. For instance, the history of the French resistance, until quite recently, was primarily written by Americans. The French didn't want to face it. It's a very difficult situation to face. There are always people who face it. Russian history, been written on, for instance, a brilliant book uh, by um, Orlando Fidges uh, on the Russian Revolution, which has won all sorts of prizes, is um, uh, written by somebody on the basis very largely of new, newly available archive material, but such a book could not be written at the moment by anybody by a Russian or a, a former citizen of the Soviet Union. In the next generation, conceivably. I think this is one of the limitations in which we find ourselves. Uh, should we forgive and forget what the Germans, the Germans, did in the last war? We should not forget. Uh, forgetting isn't part of history. Forgiving uh, it's very difficult to know how you forgive something which happened in the remote past. You can forgive people who've done you harm, but you know, uh, what is the meaning of forgiving uh, people who did your ancestors uh, three centuries ago harm? I think we should uh, as it were, think carefully about what words we use. I think we should understand what happened. I don't think uh, this means either forgetting or, if need be, condemning. I mean, there are some things which, by the standards which I myself have explained to you, require condemnation. But you can still understand how, under certain circumstances, they happened. You've given us some interesting examples of different groups um, producing different versions of history um, to suit their needs at times. Uh, for instance, the statue. 
dispute uh, the recycling of statues. What I wanted to ask was, what are the criteria that you would apply to say, no, this is a historical fact and this is a historical fiction? And how does one person make a claim to a universal um, historical discourse of fact? Well, uh, you can't make a sort of general statements about it, but I mean, it's fairly clear that there are some examples. Uh, to take a current example, right now, uh, there's been a tremendous argument. Uh, the Greek government absolutely refuses to admit that the Republic of Macedonia exists, or if it exists, has a right to the name of Macedonia. Because, they said, uh, Macedonia is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, who is the greatest of the figure in, 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 in Greek history, the great conqueror, and all the rest of it. Uh, and uh, so that, that's it. I mean, you, you can't use it. You can't even use a name. Now, not only, I mean, uh, this is a slightly ridiculous, but it is actually real. It's easy for me to say this is nonsense, but it's by no means easy for an intellectual in Athens at the moment to say that it is nonsense. In fact, what happened is it's not an argument about ancient history at all. It's an argument about 20th century history, about what happened to an area which was the ancient Macedonia, but which for many, many centuries under the Turks was not known as Macedonia at all, but which was divided after the Balkan Wars of 1912-13. The Greeks got the biggest bit of it, although a large amount of it was inhabited by people who didn't talk Greek. Uh, the Bulgarians got some of it and the Serbs got some of it and uh, at the moment the, the bits which were not Greek have now been the, the, the former Serb bits Yugoslav bits are now the Republic of Macedonia now there's been argument historical argument about Macedonia all the time uh, but in fact uh, Alexander the Great has nothing to do with it because the Greeks, there wasn't such a thing as a Greek nation-state, a Greek monarchy. As far as we're concerned, Alexander the Great was a conqueror from among the barbarians who conquered the Greeks, and then, as it were, to say that uh, you can't use the name of Macedonia because it is essentially a Greek concept is a little bit like the British saying to the French, uh, you've got to give Normandy a different name uh, because uh, by... Uh, calling itself Normandy, it is putting up a claim uh, for uh, the Britain which was uh, in fact occupied and uh, conquered by William the Conqueror. It's something of that order. It's, it's absurd if you actually look at it in cold blood. Uh, but basically you just say it's no use. Ancient history has got nothing to do with current because what we are dealing with present is a linguistic nation-state of Greece now, which has absolutely nothing whatever in common with uh, the Greece in the days of a classical antiquity. You can do that in practical cases, but I don't think there is a general rule of saying, uh, you know, press this button uh, and uh, you will get the right answer on any particular matter of history which is in political dispute.
have you got the mic? Something I don't think um, has only just been touched on. Um, the responsibility of the individual um, to decide between what is fact and what is fiction. And I wondered what you felt about um, the introduction um, at a very young age to children to make this distinction, perhaps to our education system. I mean, everybody knows that in the course of ordinary life, a lot of lies are told. Nevertheless, the distinction between telling a lie and not telling a lie is a fairly substantial one, and one which presumably is learnt at an early, an early age. I don't see anything wrong with that. To be able to criticise what we hear, to be able to distinguish between what we're told is fact and what is fiction. You distinguish between the fact and the fiction by applying the criteria of evidence uh, and logic to them. I think this next must be the last question. Is there anybody? Ah, there's a lady down here. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You, you one past last. Um, I was just wondering if you claim that nationalism is in fact an artificial construct that is enforced on the people from above by the politicians' uses of history and what statues they put up in the squares. Um, why is nationalism so easily um, sort of fired in the people? Why are people so um, fired up by nationalistic fervor very easily? No, I didn't say it was uh, imposed on people from above. I was saying it had no... Uh, historic justification in the form in which it is put forward, namely that the construction of independent territorial nations based on a particular ethnic or linguistic unit is, as it were, the natural universal aim uh, uh, of peoples. Uh, the reason why these things appeal, nationalist things appeal very much, is try to explain it right at the end of my talk. I think this is a very powerful emotionally the appeal of particular identities, nationalism, religious identities, whatever it might be, is indeed very powerful. It is all the more powerful today when to some extent people are obliged to choose their own identities. They're no longer as it were born into particular groups, particular social structures, and therefore you don't, there's no problem about uh, what it means, you know, to be, whether it is a member of a, a Highland clan, as it used to be in the days of Bonnie Prince Charlie. And to this extent, you are, in a sense, creating something uh, which is, you find psychologically necessary. But the political aims, which are then foisted onto it, are arbitrary and historically, in most cases, entirely unjustified. Moreover, the movements themselves are, I think, on balance, as the record today shows, in general dangerous and have done a great deal of harm.
Well, thank you very much. Thank you.